Gospel of John, chapter 1. What we're going to do today is I'm going to attempt to lay out the introduction here for you so that as you um, may be reading in the daily Bible reading with us or maybe you are looking to start or haven't really jumped in or maybe you just pick a couple of passages to go over, I would highly recommend... um, that you start reading through the book of John with us. I think yesterday was John 1 and today is John 2, but I didn't want to go, I didn't want to overlook the introduction because chapter 1 of John gives you all the tools you need to understand what's going to come in the rest of the book. Because John's saying something very specific about Jesus. All the Gospels are saying something about Jesus. Um, But John is doing it in a way that is fairly unique among the other Gospels. In fact, this book of John is the most unique Gospel record that we have. Uh, Just for example, um, there are eight miracles recorded in John. Miracles around Jesus, that's not unique. But of the eight miracles recorded in John, six are only found in John and only two are found elsewhere in the other Gospels. So John's recording for us six unique miracles that the other Gospels don't even record. In fact, 90% of John is unique to the other Gospels. There's no genealogy. In Matthew, you have genealogy. Um, In Mark, you have a little bit. Uh, But there's no genealogy. John isn't concerned with Jesus' family history necessarily. There's no record of Jesus' birth even, which is almost a staple in every other gospel, but it's not in John. There's no mention of his childhood. There's no mention of the temptation that he experiences in the wilderness. There's not even a parable in John. The ascension isn't mentioned, and neither is the Great Commission. John is a unique gospel among the four that we have in the Bible. And so the question is, what is John's purpose for his gospel? Uh, Matthew's purpose is to convince his Jewish brothers and sisters that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And that's his main goal. So he has genealogies. He has language about the Messiah and the Messianic King and David and things like that come into play. And while John is going to touch on some of that, that's not his main goal is to prove that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. Mark is um, simply a gospel that seeks to present the person, works, and teachings of Jesus, and most of the other gospels borrow heavily from Mark, um, including John, and it might have even been one of the very first ones, Uh, but it's simply to present the person, work, and teachings, and John is going much, much deeper, which you'll see, than just presenting those facts. And Luke, who is writing to his friend Theophilus, a Greek, uh, who is probably writing for a a majority Greek or Gentile audience, he is interested in showing the humanity of Jesus. You'll find, as Luke is a doctor who cares for people, you'll see how caring Jesus is, how often disease comes up and sickness and ailments, and how Jesus takes the time to care for those things. Of course, all the Gospels touch on these things in different ways, but that's not even John's main goal, is to show the caring humanity of Jesus. What is the goal? So if you turn to the end of John, go to chapter 20, verse 31, there's a sentence that John concludes with, it's not the exactly the last chapter, 
but he's wrapping up his gospel. And I want to read it, and then I want to go back and look at chapter 1 and see if John is successfully setting up his goal. And then I want to challenge you with how to read the rest of the book. And let me find it. When I'm up here, I can't, I don't remember how the Bible works, and I can't find stuff. There we go. In John 20, verse 31, it says this. But these are written. This gospel is written. These words are written. The account here is written. That you may believe three things. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And that because you believe that, you know that you have life, eternal life, in his name. John wants you to know, wants anybody who reads this book to know, who Jesus is in a, in a, on a level and in a way, in a perspective that is slightly different than the other Gospels. Again, they're all leading to these things, but they come at it from different perspectives. And so that's the main goal, and what I want to do today, like I said, is to look at John 1 and see if he sets up that goal well and gives you the tools that you need, and then by the end of our time in John, in a couple of weeks, hopefully you're able to trace whether or not John meets that goal, whether or not you are convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that only through his name can you have eternal life. Okay, so go back to John 1. We'll save John 20 for another time. But that's the umbrella that we're working with here. That's what's going to tie everything in the book of John together. So I've divided um, the first chapter into two parts. And I was only going to deal with one, but I think we have to go through the whole chapter to really understand what you can do to trace John's thought process and trace what he's doing through the book. So... Um, I don't know if you mark in your Bible or if you um, are just taking notes, but, but here are the two, uh, here's the divisions of this chapter. Uh, John 1, verses 1 through 18 is the first section. So you can put a line right after the 18th verse, or if you're taking notes, just make a line there. And then John 19 through 51 is the second part of the introduction. And in both parts of the introduction, John is dealing with this question, who is Jesus but he deals with it in two slightly different ways. In the first section, John 1, 1 through 18, John the, uh, John the Apostle gives us four theological statements about who Jesus is. He makes four claims about who Jesus is um, basically at his core. And then in the second half of the, or the second part of the book, it's not really a half, but in the second part of the book, then he takes those theological statements and he gives us seven titles that are the application of what we learned. And all he's doing in chapter one is he's just making a claim of who Jesus is. And, and at the end, I'm going to give you a statement that I think is a, is a good um, summary of what John is saying in chapter one. And he wants you to hear this statement after you've heard these four statements about who Jesus is theologically, after you hear these seven titles about what that means for Jesus as a human being on this earth, after you hear all that, then I want to give you a statement that sums it up, and I want you to see if you can trace whether or not that is true throughout the rest of the book. 
So this is kind of, this is just kind of giving you some tools to read the rest of John. Okay, so let's get into it. We're not going to go, it could go really, really deep. Uh, we're not going to go that deep. We're going to keep it kind of light um, because we only have so much time. But it's very important that we consider what John is saying about who Jesus is. So the first statement uh, is found in verses 1 and 2. And this is the statement. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the same God that the people of Israel have been worshiping for their history. The God that called Abraham, the God that wrestled with Jacob, the God that saved Joseph, the God that called Moses, the God that parted the Red Sea. Jesus is God. Look at verse 1 of John 1. In the beginning was the word. Right away, immediately, you should be connecting this to another passage in Scripture. Can you think of which one that is? Genesis 1, yes, thank you. Genesis 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God. And so if you're hearing this, if you're um, an Israelite or a, a Jewish person reading the book of John, you instantly go back to Genesis. And a claim is being made right off the bat here. It's true in Genesis that God was always there. In the beginning, God. He started creation. So he had to be before creation. And now John is saying something else. In the beginning was the word. And it's capitalized in your Bible. Uh, the Greek word is logos. Most people are pretty familiar with this section and, and, and the Greek there. Uh, I'm just going to keep using the word word. But this is a title. This is a name. This is something more than just some spoken thing that goes out into the air. This is something more than that. And you might be confused because God says in the Old Testament over and over and over again that he is one. There is only one God that the people of Israel serve. And so John is getting dangerously close here to blasphemy because he's saying not only was God in the beginning, but this word was in the beginning. And so John makes sure to clarify this statement because it is so powerful and so important, it must be clear what John is saying. So he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you'll notice that whatever this Word is, it is distinct from God. If I'm, I'm the only one up here, but if someone were to come up here, and if it's somebody I'd never known before, they were to come up here, and they were just to sit in the back or stand over here, we would be, they would be with me on the stage. That's how we would think of it, right? They'd be with me. We'd be connected, but we'd be distinct. We're two different things up here on the stage, and we are together because of, of our location. And so there's a distinction of this word and God, but we know there's only one God, so how is this possible? And then John says, the word was God. And so we don't have time to go into the doctrine of the Trinity, but as you can see, the beginnings of that doctrine are starting here. Of course, God was always talking about how, there are, how he is three in one. But John is making an important statement about who Jesus is, and that is Jesus is God. 
You don't see the name Jesus right here, but as we continue to read, it will become clear that when he says word, he's referring to Christ. So I'm just going to save us some time and start referring to that as well. But when John says, in the beginning was the word, he's saying, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, distinct with him, and also equal and the same. He was with God, and he was God. This is going to be very important, especially for the next statement that he makes. But then he sums it up and he says, he was in the beginning with God. And that's how we know the word is someone, because he says he. Okay, so there's a lot right there, and we could probably just spend the rest of the time talking about what that means. But understand that John is saying Jesus is God, eternally distinct and eternally same with him, and he's been with God. Okay, then he makes his next statement. Jesus is the power of creation. So remember in Genesis, which we've already connected to, it says, in the beginning, God. And what did God do in the beginning? He created. And how did he create? Through his spoken word. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Well, that's amazing to think about and to contemplate that. But John is giving us some insight into what that process meant. What was going on there that was under the surface that maybe we didn't understand, and that is this, that Jesus was making the light. When God said, let there be light, Jesus made the light. He's the power of creation. This is also immensely important to say right off the bat in a gospel, when you're trying to prove that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, the Christ, and the one, who is, um, the one whose name is required for eternal life, it's important to know that he is God and he's the power of creation. He's intimately tied to everything we find in this world, in this universe. There was a first century thought, there was a first century teaching that Jesus was just the next in the long line of messengers and emissaries that God sent to tell people about him. He was just the next Moses. He was just the next Elijah. And while he was those things in a sense, Jesus is so much more. And so it's important not to say, well, Jesus was a good teacher who showed us some good things, or Jesus was revolutionary or countercultural, or he did things that nobody else did. He made me think about things in a way I'd never thought about them before. Instead of just boiling him down to the next major prophet, John is saying he is the power of God. Elijah could never claim to be the power of God. When Elijah had, went to heaven, he had to become, and the chariots had to come down and pick him up and take him. He couldn't get himself there in any way. Moses never parted the Red Sea, though he gets credit. Moses didn't write the Ten Commandments, though he gets a lot of credit. He's simply the messenger bringing the word. And you see, Jesus is so much more than that, because when God said, let there be light, Jesus made light appear. When Jesus said, let there, or when God said, let there be atoms, Jesus made atoms. When God said, let there be um, atmosphere and let there be tides and let there be wind and weather patterns and mountains to control those things and the moon to control that stuff, Jesus made it happen. Moses never had a chance of doing any of that because Moses was simply a man. 
But Jesus is God and he has the power of creation. He is the power of creation. So that's the second statement. And the third statement comes in verses six through 11. And I want you to notice this if you circle or if you're writing your notes out. Um, make a note of the word light. John is gonna, he, he's got patterns. And you're gonna see, we're gonna talk about seven titles here in a second. John loves the number seven, comes up a lot in his book. And John loves the imagery of light and darkness. Comes up in this book, comes up in the other letters. Light and darkness are very important for him. He loves that picture. And light and darkness represent truth and foolishness. Truth and blindness. Knowing, seeing, and not being able to see. That comes up a lot. Light and darkness. In verse 6 it says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's the Baptist. This man came for a witness. To bear witness of the light that all through him might believe John the Baptist was not the light, we know that, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Talking about Jesus has to be, because he's the power of creation. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through Jesus, and the world did not know Jesus. And Jesus came to his own, and Jesus' own did not receive him. There's so much going on here. There is a statement about who Jesus is at his core, and there's also a history lesson going on at the same time. It's, it's amazing. But the statement here is that Jesus is the light. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the illuminator of who God really is and what God says and what God means and what God wants. We don't know that on our own or we do know it and we choose to not follow it we choose to reject it the darkness represents the blindness to the truth that we that sin has brought to this world a desire to not understand what god would have us to do a desire to not move towards relationship with god a desire to go our own way and do our own thing but see, Jesus came to show us the way back to God. He came to show us what Adam and Eve knew prior to chapter 3 and what they wanted prior to chapter 3, which was to walk intimately and closely in the cool of the day with God and have discussion and relationship and Bible study and whatever they were having as you walk through your garden. And then when sin came into the world, they were ashamed and had to hide themselves and wanted to be in the darkness because the light was too painfully bright. And Jesus has come to say, I want you to not be afraid of the light or to reject the light or to turn from the light, but I want you to be drawn to the light. And so Jesus comes to show us who God really is. It's important to note this one other thing in this statement in these verses. You'll notice twice it says, in verse uh, six it says, this man, that's John, came for a witness to bear witness of the light. And then in verse eight it says, um, John was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness to that light. This is very important as well. Bearing witness is gonna come up a lot in the book of John too. And this is a cultural thing that is very important and we shouldn't miss it either. So if you wanted to prove something, if you made a statement in the Jewish culture, and you said, Jesus is God. 
the man Jesus from Nazareth, who's God. And you said that. People might believe you if they knew who you are, or they might not, but what they would normally say is, well, can you prove that? And the way to prove it was to have witnesses come and give testimony. I mean, this isn't crazy because we still do this today, but what's important is, so if one person came and corroborated that said, oh yeah, Jesus is God, I might sit there and say, well, okay, but that's just one person and maybe you got them to say that. Maybe you paid them off. But then another person comes and says, yes, I know Jesus is God, here's why. And then you say, okay, well, two people, well, maybe I'm a little more convinced. And then 10 people show up. And then 20 people show up. And then 30 people show up. And 100 people show up. And they all say, yes, we know Jesus is God. Here's how we know. Here's what he did. They are bearing witness. And the more witnesses that could corroborate a message or a statement, the more I can believe that it's true. And so right off the bat, in John 1, in the introduction, we're going to meet one of the first people who were bearing witness in an official and a uh, divisive way to the fact that Jesus is God. And John, the apostle, starts with John the Baptist bearing witness, and I hope you will notice as you read through and trace through how many other people will then be able to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is God. But don't miss that, that this is important. He's not just saying, Jesus is God, I know because I walked with him and that's great and I hope you believe me. He's saying, listen, people, many, many people, all different backgrounds, all different places of belief, all different types of people ran into Jesus and they all walked away saying the same thing, that he is God. There's something, to, there, there must be something to it. Okay, so Jesus is God. Jesus is the power of creation. He is the light, the illuminator of God, of which people will continue to bear witness to. And then finally, the fourth statement that he makes in these first 18 verses is that Jesus is God. We already had that one. God in human flesh. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God. What's he talking about here? Well, in the story, in the little history uh, story that's going on here too, the story within the story that's going on too, Jesus has already come to this earth and if Jesus is God and then he has taken the form of a man, then Jesus, who is God, must find some sort of importance in humanity. I mean, why would he do that to himself? Why would God come down as a human. Well, if you remember from John 20, what's the point? What's he trying to prove? That Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and that his name alone is needed for eternal life, for salvation. And John reiterates that, well, he he says it first here in verse 12, but as many as received him, that's who received Jesus, and that means to believe in him, not just to like invited them into their house or listened to his teaching, but that's who actually put their trust in him and obeyed him those he gave the right to become children of God. He's essentially explaining how salvation works here in just a few statements. He gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of only the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, Jesus, 
who is God, who is the power of creation, who is the illuminator of God, chose to become a man. And not just become a man, but to become a man and not set up an empire and rule over the lowly servants and punish all the sinners, but a man who came to dwell among us, full of grace and truth. You're going to notice that as well. Light and dark is going to be all throughout the book. Grace and truth is going to be all throughout the book of John as well. I would make a note of that also. And listen, John the Baptist, he says in verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this, is, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And in Jesus' fullness, so that is the fullness being he is God and he is man, in his, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so you see, even though John isn't specifically trying to do what Matthew was doing in convincing the Jewish people um, in the same way, he still is trying to convince all of his Jewish brothers and sisters that listen, Jesus is that one that Moses himself talked about. Jesus is that one that Elijah spoke about. Jesus is the one that God promised all the way back at the beginning when Adam and Eve first sinned. Jesus is God. He's the power of creation. He is the light. He is God in the flesh. Those four themes, those four core things about Jesus, theological points, are going to come up over and over in the book of John. And I, uh, cha- my challenge for you will be to, can you find the connections? Can you find, as you read, where Jesus shows the power of creation, where Jesus shows that he's the illuminator of God? So that's, that's one challenge. Can you connect the rest of the book to these four statements about Jesus? It all flows through this. Okay, so that's the first section. And now I just want to quickly... And we will go quickly, but I just want to quickly look at the second section. It's too important to miss. All right, so verses 19 through 51. We're not going to read them all. But I just want to point out this, that in this, now we've kind of moved from a poem, an introductory, theological, super deep poem about who Jesus is at his core. And what he, uh, now we're going to move into what does that mean for me as a human who lives on this earth? As a human who's dealing with sin, as a human who's constrained by mortality and finiteness and um, growing old and moving towards death and decay, what does it mean for me that Jesus is God, he's the power of creation, he's the light, and he's God in flesh? Because if that's all we learned about Jesus, that would be amazing, but that does not connect to my problem, my problem of sin. That does not connect to me quite as much. And this is why Jesus is so beautiful, why God is so amazing that he would care to connect these truths about him to you and to I, to you and to me, (laughs) on on an everyday level that we can understand. So we move from this poem to now a little bit of a story, and we hear about John the Baptist and how he came. 
But instead of the usual, John's at the river baptizing everybody and the Pharisees are upset and Jesus comes in and all this stuff, instead of that, we have this interesting um, picture where, um, where we get a little bit more information. And so there are seven titles. There are um, several characters that are going to pop up in the rest of this chapter. And they are going to give Jesus seven different titles. And in fact, Jesus himself is going to give him a title. He's going to call himself something that is going to play out in the rest of the book so that you and I, by the time we get to John chapter 20, we will be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and his is the only name needed for salvation. So I want to give to you these titles real quick. We're not going to explain them in great detail or anything. And then I want to show how I think they kind of meld together into one statement that is the thesis for the entire book of John that is going to get you to his conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Christ, and that he is the only name needed for eternal life. Okay, so if you look at verse 29 of John chapter 1, it says this, Next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. The first title that we get is that Jesus is called the Lamb of God. And it is no wonder that John the Baptist would be the one to call him the Lamb of God because John the Baptist's message is all about what? Cleansing the people from their sin. He is deeply concerned, right? That's his message that he preaches that the Pharisees are upset with and that is drawing people. He's out in the water and he's saying, come, you need to repent and change your ways and you need to be cleansed and I'm gonna put you under the water to signify that you have been forgiven and cleansed of your sin. And the title Lamb of God is all about the cleansing sacrifice necessary to wash away sin, right? The Lamb of God to the Jewish mind would have been. A a lamb is what is to be sacrificed. And Jesus is called the Lamb of God, the one sacrifice that's going to be necessary to be forgiven of sin. So right off the bat, John is cluing everybody into what he's supposed to do, what Jesus is going to do. But it takes, you know, the entire, entire book and takes a whole three years and then the death and then the resurrection to finally come to terms with it. But we're already clued in to what Jesus' mission is. So he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And then in verse, um, oh, I didn't write the second one down. Uh, verse 34, he goes on and he calls Jesus the Son of God. Now, you and I, and I've just spent this whole time talking about how Jesus is the Son of God, so you're not shocked by this, or you're not, this isn't the first time you're hearing it, but this is the first time people are hearing somebody with authority like John the Baptist saying, that's the Son of God. That's God's Son. That, that, that title, that title doesn't just get thrown around to everybody. That title isn't something that's just used willy-nilly. Not everyone's called a son of God. People aren't just called that, especially a no-name from Nazareth who no one really knows. John the Baptist, who a lot of people knew, says to his disciples, that is the son of God. And that title is going to come up over and over and over again. 
right? Because isn't that one of the things John's trying to convince us of, that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, so that's the second title. Third title is found in verse 38. And this is now Andrew, who was a disciple of John, was listening to John's teaching, heard John say that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Son of God. And so Andrew says, well, I gotta follow this guy and find out what he's all about. So he follows Jesus down the road. Jesus says, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> Which he does every now and then. And then the, and he's like, well, I, I gotta know more about you. I gotta know. And so Jesus said, well, come on, let me tell you more. And in verse 38... Andrew and the other disciple he was with said to Jesus, he called him Rabbi, which is translated to say teacher. Now you'll notice the teacher in my Bible and the rabbi in my Bible are capitalized, so hopefully they are in yours. This isn't just, there, there were lots of rabbis, lots of teachers, like there are lots of pastors or there are lots of priests. The capitalization means that this isn't just any rabbi or this isn't just any teacher. In fact, Andrew is attributing to Jesus the title of the teacher or the rabbi of Israel. And this is something that comes up every now and again in the Old Testament. Someone will mention this. And the teacher of Israel, the rabbi of Israel with the capitals, is the one who is to teach, who knows all and has the truth that Israel is supposed to listen to. They're the one that has the correct message. You have rabbis teaching one thing over here, rabbis teaching one thing over there. I mean, th we understand that. But this is to say this is the one who understands what God has said and is sharing it correctly. And that's what Andrew thinks. And he thinks it so much that he runs to tell his brother and he runs to tell his friends that I have found the one. In fact, he says in verse 41, the next title, the fourth title for Jesus, I have found the Messiah. He runs to Peter, his brother, and he says, I've found the Messiah. Now, if you study ancient history, ancient Jewish history, you'll know that plenty of people claim to be messiahs. So, at this point, Peter could have said, okay, I've heard that before, maybe. But there's something about Andrew's bearing witness to Jesus that convinces Peter to follow him. Now, we're only in the introduction, so if you're not convinced yet by it, if you say, well, there's, you know, there's lots of people claiming to be a Messiah back then, that's fine. We're only in the introduction. You have 21 more chapters to be convinced of who Jesus says he is, but somehow on this day, Peter was convinced enough to go and to take a look that Jesus was the Messiah. We use that word a lot, and I think we don't really understand the weight that it would have had for a Jewish person to run up to their family and say, I found that one that God promised way back. I found them. I'm convinced that this is them. But Andrew was so convinced about Christ. Okay, then, in ver uh, then the fifth title uh, is by Philip, the disciple Philip. And uh, this is in verse 45. This is just a regular one, but important. You're not going to be blown away by this one, but that's kind of the point. In verse, uh, in verse 45, Philip calls Jesus, ready? Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Just a regular title. Just his name. 
said in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael, his brother, and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, we found that guy, and guess who it is? It's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And I bet Nathanael was like getting excited, like, oh, who is it? And then look what he says. He says in verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's like, what? Who? No way. Impossible. Couldn't be. Usually, I think we th- um, the thinking is generally that, oh, there must be something off about Nazareth or, um, or bad about Nazareth. And that's possible, but it's also possible that Nazareth was just so unimportant that Nathaniel, who Jesus says later is a Jew among Jews, who was deeply religious, would have looked at that and said, why on earth does Nazareth, wh- wh- how could the Messiah come from there? It- it's nothing. It's nothing. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not in any of the prophecies. What's Nazareth? Just a little hick town that nobody cares about. How could God come from there? And that's kind of the point. The unremarkable remarkableness of Jesus, that humility that Paul points out in Philippians 2. He was born in a stable. He lived in Nazareth where nobody cared about it. He wasn't coming in fanfare and coming um, on a horse to destroy his enemies. He was coming to institute a kingdom totally different than what people expected. He was simply Jesus of Nazareth, who was God and the power of creation and the illuminator of God's truth, and who was God walking in flesh. The sixth title comes in verse 49, when Nathaniel does finally go meet just this regular old guy named Jesus from Nazareth. He says this, after he talks to him, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You are my promised king. You're the fulfillment of, You're not just the Messiah who can save the people, you're also the ruler and rightful uh, king of the people of God. It's so, like, chapter one, everything's starting off so great. Everybody's getting it. John's telling us what what Jesus is going to do. These disciples are understanding who he is, and then once we get through the rest of the book, they start to get tested when Jesus starts acting these things out in ways they never expected. But I want you to trace these things throughout the book. And finally, in verse 7, Jesus himself gives himself a title. Or not verse 7, sorry, the seventh title. In verse 51 at the very end, he calls himself, and it's going to come up again. This is something that's also going to come up again in the book of John, over and over again. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Son of God, Son of Man. He's saying, I'm a human. I'm like you in a lot of ways, in most ways, in all ways, except one. (laughs) I'm also God. But I am the son of man. And remember, John made a point to say that Jesus is God in flesh. Because if Jesus is not God in flesh, then the way in which he is our Christ falls apart, Christ being Messiah, being Savior, if Jesus isn't that perfect sacrifice for us, then he isn't the Savior. He might be the Son of God, like it says in, verse, er, in chapter 20, but, he might not be the, but he's, not the, he's not the only one I can believe in because his death, 
his resurrection, his righteousness can't be attributed to me if he's not one like me. So you see how important it is that Jesus is God, but Jesus is also God incarnate. And these things are just being teased out here, but like I said, they're gonna come uh, up often throughout the book. So here's the statement, I just will end on this. Here's the statement that all these titles I think bring together. And this is the statement that I want you to see if you can trace throughout the book of John and whether or not John is sharing with us, if Jesus, let me say it this way, does Jesus live up to these titles? The statement is this, Jesus of Nazareth, who is both fully God and fully man, is the promised Messiah and teacher of Israel. He will die for the sins of the people to bring peace with God. That's the statement. I think that's the thesis statement that the introduction here is making. Based on the fact of who Jesus is and how he applies who he is to his human form, to his time on earth, to you and I. Jesus of Nazareth, who is both fully God and fully man, is the promised Messiah and teacher of Israel, and he will die for the sins of the people to bring peace with God. So the challenge to you is, as you read through John, can you trace this story thread? Is John proving these things? Is Jesus truly these things that he's laid out here in John 1? So that's your challenge. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the picture we have of Jesus Christ that we have from your word. Father, thank you for the rich depth and beauty that we see here in John 1 of who Jesus is. Father, I pray that as we read through this book, we will be reminded over and over and over again of just how wonderfully magnificent Jesus is, how beautiful he is, how precious to us he is, how he's the securer of our salvation, how he's the sustainer of our hope. Father, I pray that these things would just pop out to us that as we read the book of John for the first time or for however many times we've already read it before, Father, I pray that we would see Jesus again anew and we would continue to fall deeper in love with him because without Christ, we have no hope. We have no encouragement. We have nothing. But God, you are so merciful and so gracious and loving enough to send us Jesus. And Jesus, you are so gracious and loving enough to take on flesh, become like one of us, and meet us where we are. Father, I thank you so much, and I pray we never forget how precious that gift is. Never take it for granted. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.